Let's open our Bibles this morning to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, where we'll continue studying Paul's miscellaneous exhortations and duties that he sets before these Hebrew Christians. The subject I dealt with last Sunday from Hebrews 13.5, and that is the grace of Christian contentment is a most important subject I hope you haven't forgotten this week. Sometimes I worry covering a subject one Sunday is like giving you leave to forget about it the next Sunday. Contentment in what we covered last Sunday is so important for us to avoid covetousness in a covetous society living in a covetous generation. And instead of covetousness, having that virtue of contentment. The Apostle said in verse 5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. Covetousness is that desire for things that you don't possess that would either lead you to consuming desire for that thing where you cannot control it, it replaces God in your life, and it causes you to have an imbalance in your priorities, or it's a desire for things that leads you to actually consider some ungodly means to acquire that thing. That's what covetousness is in the Word of God. Instead of covetousness, we're not to have any of it, and our conversation, our manner of life, our living, is not to show any signs of it. We are to be content with such things as we hope to obtain. We are to be content with such things as we have. Are we content with the things we have? Or are we always thinking in a futuristic mindset, well, as soon as I get to this point in my life, and I've got this much in the bank, and I've got this type of a house mostly paid for, and I'm driving this kind of a car, and I have plenty of money for clothing, I'll be content with the things that I have. That isn't what the Savior said. That isn't what Paul taught. He said to be content with such things as ye have, present tense, what you're in possession of right now, ought to be enough if you've got food and raiment and housing to be content. To be discontented is to be murmuring against God for what He's given you, to be filled with anxiety and care because you don't have enough, to envy others and to have malice, malicious thoughts toward them, and to be covetous. To be consumed, to go into debt, to buy things you can't afford, to be a workaholic because you're trying to achieve things God hasn't given you with a reasonable amount of work. Remember, God has designed sleep for His beloved. It is vain for us to rise up too early, to sit up too late, to eat the bread of too many sorrows, because God wants us to sleep. If you can't give a reasonable amount of effort for the things that you desire, then they are things beyond what you, beyond your means, and you should not be desiring them. We have to keep things within bounds. I want to look at just a few references from last Sunday that we didn't get to look at. Psalm 37 and verse 16. 
Psalm 37 and verse 16, contentment is superior to covetousness. One is evil, one is righteous. God condemns one and exonerates and commands the other. We need to have our priorities in the proper place. As I taught you last Sunday from Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. What you have is not your life, whatever that might be. A wife, children, a job, material objects at home, toys. That's not what your life consists of. And they're they're really quite irrelevant to your life. And I like verses like this where God the Holy Spirit actually gives us priorities. Verse 16. A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Though your neighbor may have matching Cadillacs in his garage, our children know of a particular house on their paper out where the man and the wife have matching Cadillacs, and they point that out to me often. Though the wicked may have matching Cadillacs, what is better? Having matching Cadillacs, yet living in wickedness, or having a little, you know, a 7998, a 62 Falcon, a 77 Toyota, whatever you may be driving, and yet having righteousness. What's better? Our society will convince you that it's the matching Cadillacs. But the Word of God gives us a priority right here. Better is a little with righteousness than the riches of many wicked. Look at Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15. Someone will say, well, obviously, having a little is better than being some wicked man like Bundy. I wouldn't let you escape quite so easily. Bundy isn't the man you're to compare yourself against. How about comparing yourself against Hebrews 13.5? If you're covetous and not content with the things that you have, you are wicked. Covetousness is one of those sins 20th century Christians just like to whitewash as not being all that bad. I mean, is it really equal to murder? Well, God says that it is idolatry. That's how bad covetousness is. It is idolatry. It is putting something before God. To be covetous and not to be content is wickedness. So if you're doing everything else well in your life, but you're covetous and you're discontented, you are wicked. It'd be better to have a little and to have that wickedness out of your life. Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. You show me a man who's dedicated his life to pursuing the things of this world, he will have a word true of his life that begins with T-R. And it's trouble. It's trouble. When you dedicate yourself to getting things, you're going to have trouble. Because that's what this world is filled with, is trouble. When it comes to things of this world, because all of it is 
vanity. And vanity means there's going to be trouble. There's going to be thieves that break through and steal it. There's going to be rust that corrupts it. There's going to be moths that eat it. Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Look at 16 and verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. Look at 17 and verse 1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife. The sacrifices simply mean lots of stakes. Lots of leg of lamb. You've made lots of sacrifices. You've brought the best cuts home. And you have a house full of meat. Better is a dry morsel. You've got to sit down to the remains of your jar of Skippy and some dry soda crackers. It's better to have that and some quietness where you can sit there and eat it quietly with your wife and children than to have the house full of steaks but with strife where you're striving all the time to get ahead and you weren't promoted fast enough so you're striving with men at work and you're striving with your neighbor because he bought the new car before you did or he made some change to his house before you did or some children at school have some clothing superior to your children. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than anything with strife. Now, the the Holy Spirit is giving us priorities. Are you keeping those priorities in your life? A little with quietness is better than anything with strife. Look at 28 and verse 6. Proverbs 28 and verse 6, better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. I'm repeating these messages because God repeated them over and over. What are you content with? If God and I and His angels and the rest of this assembly were to write down your priorities in life based on your use of time, what would it be? Things or quietness? If those parties were to prioritize your life by your debt, what would it show? You need to ask yourself a number of questions. Is quietness and righteousness something I am studying to learn? Oh, we're, many of us are proud of busting our backsides to get college diplomas. We learned, we think we learned something. We studied to acquire something. But have we studied as diligently to learn to be quiet? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? That ye study to be quiet? Look at Ecclesiastes 4.6. This is the last reference from Hebrews 13.5. This is the best put statement by Solomon. Ecclesiastes 4.6 Better is a handful with quietness 
than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. We live in a time where everything outside of this room is screaming for you to acquire and to fill your life with travail and vexation of spirit. Everything outside this room is screaming at you to do that, and believe me, you've got plenty inside that likes the music. Travail and vexation of spirit. But Solomon, the man who spent some travail and found that everything under the sun is vanity and vexation of spirit, came to the conclusion, better. Here's a wise man telling you what's better in life. Can we learn from it? Or are we going to sit there blankly, letting these words just run off? What will you do this week to generate some quietness in your life? Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. If we were to prioritize your life by the amount of quiet time you have for meditation, how would you stand and how would you measure up? Would you be a wise person following Solomon and these words? Or would you be one in need of a lesson? Quietness. What should our pursuit be? Things or quietness? What's the priority? God's made it plain in Scripture. We need to study to be quiet. You won't do it by nature. By nature, our lives will be as noisy as they can be. We will run ourselves into the grave. God wants us to learn to have some quietness. Let's look now at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Last Sunday we concluded the study of covetousness and contentment by looking at the basis for true contentment, and that is in the fact that there is an infinite being in this universe named God who is our God. And He has promised a number of things to us, but one of the chief of those promises is, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13.5 makes its argument, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have by appealing to the promise, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If we have God, what does it matter what else we have? What's the difference between a handful, I mean a handful and both hands full? What's the difference between a dry morsel and a house full of sacrifices? What's the difference between being poor and being very rich? If we have God, God is so far superior to any of those things or comparisons. And Paul's whole argument for contentment is based on the fact that we have a relationship with the Almighty Himself. But if you don't have any quietness, and if you haven't spent any time in meditation, and if you don't sit down and read the Word of God simply to read about this incredibly infinite being and the things He's done and the things He's promised to do and what He will do, then you don't appreciate much the fact that we have a relationship with that being. It's a vicious circle. The devil has created this materialistic 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life generation, because it keeps men from ever realizing what they have in a relationship with God, because they're consumed with the pursuit of things. And the more they're consumed with that pursuit, the less time they have to even know what it is to have a relationship with God. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That is the basis for arguing for contentment. But now look at verse 6. So, in this manner, in this way, for this reason, we may boldly say, Paul is so brief in this particular section of Scripture, he's built one argument from the promise in verse 5, now he's going to build another argument from the same promise, completely different from contentment. And that is the subject of courage. So that we may boldly say, for what reason can we speak boldly? For this reason, God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Because of God's promise to always be with us, we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. All because of God's promise to be with us. This morning, let's spend a few more minutes studying the subject of courage. How long ago was it that I preached on courage? The middle of August, last year, just before school began, I preached a biographical sermon about Caleb. Caleb, the courageous zealot that the Old Testament tells us of and the Hebrews records again for us in chapter 3 and chapter 11. Courage is that state of mind which shows itself in facing danger without shirking or without shrinking away from that danger. It's bravery. It's boldness. It's valor. How valiant are you as men and women? How courageous? How bold? How brave are you in facing threatening or intimidating situations? Hebrews 13.6 wants to teach us courage so that we're brave and bold in discharging our duties. Not only should we say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. We are to say it boldly so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. We can laugh at anything. We can march on any enemy and say God is my helper. God is for me. Who's for you, buddy? I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Who's on your side? God's on my side. That kind of gives you the majority if God is on your side. Let's go to the place where this quotation is taken from. Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, which is a, which is a plain, popular passage provoking to courage. How would you have liked to have followed Moses around for 40 years with the most rebellious group of people that God ever allowed to be assembled in one place on this planet? and watching them threaten, try to stone, try to kill, reject, resist, 
worship idols for 40 years and then have that man who took all the heat, who was God's ambassador, by whom God gave the Ten Commandments and all of His revelations, die. And you're second in command. It'd be like Dan Quayle becoming president tomorrow. Joshua became the leader of Israel. And he needs these words that God gives him in chapter 1 of Joshua. Look at verse 1. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the left hand nor to the right, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written here therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. God is with you. And if God is with you, there is no reason to fear. I'll be with you. No man, no enemy, shall be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. Only, what's the only condition that God puts on this? Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law. And that law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Which tells us one of the sources of courage is the Word of God. You read the Word of God, how can you be timid? Because the Word of God is a book filled with the exploits of valiant men. It is the book written of God's deliverance of His saints, of God's protection of those who have put their trust in Him. He was first of all to have courage against His enemies. Not a man shall be able to stand against thee. That's quite a promise. Second of all, He was to have courage to obey God's Word. Now why does it take courage to obey God's Word? Because obeying God's Word will not meet 
with the approval of men. Because God's ways are as different from man's ways as any two things you can imagine. There is nothing God requires that the world does naturally, nor do they approve of it. So everything God's Word teaches us, it's going to find in our human hearts enmity and opposition. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. They are not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. There is within us enmity and opposition to whatever God's law commands. In order for a man to keep God's law diligently, he's got to be a courageous man because all the time people are going to be disapproving of what he's doing. If you don't have people disapproving of what you're doing, you're not keeping God's commandments. If you find people content with your life, relatives, friends, neighbors, even your own family members, you're not diligently observing to do all that is written in God's Word. Because when you do all that is written in God's Word, you will find you've got more enemies than you thought. Because men hate what God's Word teaches. And it takes courage to be a man that obeys God's Word because you're not going to meet with popular opinion nor approval of others. You will have to gut it out on your own. But thanks be to God for a congregation where we can have a few brothers and sisters that will stick together. But other than the refuge of this small assembly, when you're out there in the world, if your family, if your friends and neighbors colleagues at work do not despise and disapprove of your life your life is not a godly life they will object to it because you will be a condemnation to them by your very existence because issues will arise where you take a position different from theirs and remember this was, this was an assembly of the Lord's people. This was God encouraging Joshua to be courageous as a leader of the Lord's church, where he was going to find plenty of enemies who did not observe, nor did they love, all that is written in God's law. They were quick to have their own opinion of how things should be done. But we need to be courageous if we are to keep all that God has commanded. Everyone wants to know what the rules are for success in life. I mean, the bookstores have plenty of books on ten rules for success or prosperity. Joshua 1.9 tells you how you can have a life that is successful and meets with prosperity. Verse 8, I mean, not verse 9. Verse 9 has the condition. Verse 8 tells us in the last part of that verse, For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. A man that will be courageous and strong to do all that is written in God's Word and to meditate upon it so that he knows what to do will have the Midas touch. A man that puts 
his confidence in God and is bold and courageous to do all that God has said will be like King Midas. Remember King Midas? Everything he touched turned to gold. Now that can be a curse as it was in the case of the poor king. But the point I'm trying to make is what you do will prosper. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success if you're bold and courageous. But we've got within us little timid hearts of sheep, the timid hearts of women, and we're afraid for evil. We're afraid of other men. We're afraid of those that might disapprove of us. We're afraid of peer pressure. What is peer pressure? I'm afraid of what other morons think. Peer pressure usually manifests itself in school where you're dealing with morons. They don't know anything about life. They've never even lived yet. They're babies. And yet what they say intimidates us. I remember I was there. You want to be accepted. And the acceptance is not acceptance with God, but acceptance by other morons other fools. Fools determine your conduct because of fear. But the Bible is teaching here courage. Who cares what they think? I'm going to be strong and courageous and trust in the Lord's promise. He'll be with me, though they all forsake me and call me a nerd in school. Or a square. Whatever generation you're from. I don't care. So what if they forsake me and shun me and I have to go to school by myself and no one says a word to me? So, the Lord is with me. Guess what? You're in better company than they are. Look at First Chronicles 19.13. I like reading some references. That I'm going to read some references this morning that I hope just by their words and situation will provoke some of you men and women to think of being brave and courageous in the face of danger. The danger is great from peer pressure, isn't it? They might call you a name. They might whisper behind your back. Isn't that a grave danger? Consider it well. It's so frightening. What a joke. And yet we're afraid of it so many times. First Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 13. Here's Joab preparing for battle. And he says to his brother Abishai in verse 13, Be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God, and let the Lord do that which is good in His sight. Notice, Joab didn't say, Be of good courage, and let us behave ourselves, brother, with the self-confidence mommy's taught us since we were two years old. He said, let us behave ourselves valiantly and God do what seemeth Him good. Always falling back on God. Sure, we go do our best. But victory, these men knew, was not in their sword. It was not in their arm. It was not in their legs nor in their horses. But it was in the Lord's hands. But they were going to give themselves valiantly. I love a little statement like that. You know, we wish at times we could have been in the ranks of Napoleon and Alexander the Great, maybe Attila the Hun, 
maybe Genghis Khan, whatever your mind thinks of when you think of a great military leader, Oliver Cromwell, and we wonder what short words of encouragement they'd have to prepare and fit men to go and face death. George Patton, Douglas MacArthur, how do you take a thousand, a hundred thousand, or hundreds of thousands, such as at D-Day, and provoke them to face death, many of whom knew because they were in the first waves they didn't stand a chance? Isn't that incredible? That men will be that courageous facing death and then they come back to the United States after the war is over when they've had buddies blown away on both sides and because the newspapers create some new fad or some new policy, they give, they bend. They're moldable and pliable to public opinion. Hear the words of Joab, Be of good courage and let us behave ourselves valiantly for our people and for the cities of our God, and let the Lord do that which is good in His sight. Boom. They went to battle. And they fought valiantly. Look at First Chronicles 22 and verse 13. David here is speaking to his son, Solomon. Verse 13, Then shalt thou prosper if thou takest heed to fulfill the statutes and judgments which the Lord charged Moses with concerning Israel. Be strong and of good courage. Dread not, nor be dismayed. There is a death man's advice to a young man on how to have a successful life. Do you want to, can you think of a better man to give such advice than David on his deathbed? He said, Be strong and of good courage, dread not nor be dismayed. And that was in context of telling him to do whatsoever Moses had charged the people of Israel with. Because to keep God's commandments takes courage. Because others are going to frown on your behavior. They're going to frown on your attitude toward this wicked world. Are you courageous enough to stand alone and maintain the mind of the Lord in the midst of a crooked, and perverse and rotten generation. Are you able to do it? Listen, the Bible is an extreme book. When the Bible says, let your moderation be known unto all men, it is not talking about your position and what God has commanded. It's talking about matters of Christian liberty. When God has commanded something, there is one great virtue that he loves and that's extremism it's called zeal and fervency of spirit in the bible we should never compromise nor moderate god's commandments nor the mind of the lord when we talk about let your moderation be known unto all men we're talking about things like drinking things like your speech in general things like your weight. Moderation being another word for temperance. Let the world see that you're self-disciplined in all things. That's what the word moderation is. 
you're not running to excess in those areas God's told you to rein in and control. You know, the Bible, in the Bible, Paul told Timothy, a young minister, he said, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. He's given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Ministers should be an example of the believer in courage. And I want to give you a couple of references that you can apply directly to your own lives. Look at Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2, now a verse like this means more to me than it will to you, but it will mean something to you also. Ezekiel chapter 2, where God addresses His prophet Ezekiel by calling him Son of Man in verse 1, Stand upon thy feet, and I will speak unto thee. And here's what he has to say to Ezekiel in verse 6. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Though they might try to teach Ezekiel something with briars and thorns, who did that in the Bible? Was there a man in the Bible who taught some city rulers one time with briars and thorns? See, our, our education system has left out the greatest means to education. It'd be a switch made of briars and thorns. Now, Gideon was intelligent enough to know that. He taught the city council in the city of Succoth some wisdom with briars and thorns. But in this place, though Ezekiel might be faced with briars and thorns, and though he might have to dwell among scorpions in a dungeon someplace because he's cast there, don't be afraid of their words. Now, this is pretty practical and specific, isn't it? Don't be afraid of someone's words about you. Who cares about another man's opinion? Nor be dismayed at their looks. You know, ministers have to stand up and look at a whole lot of faces. And oh, people try to communicate their approval and disapproval by their faces. Ministers have always had to face that temptation to cave in, to compromise, to sweeten their message, to smooth things. And God warned Ezekiel, don't be afraid of their words. Don't be dismayed by their faces. Look at Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 8. Same man, same message. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Now, that's for ministers specifically. But in general, we shouldn't be worried about what people say. We shouldn't be worried about what they may look like when we're telling them something or when we're doing something. Their frown of disapproval is irrelevant compared to the frown of disapproval on the face of the Almighty when you do something against His Word. God have mercy if He ever frowns at any of you. It will be one terrible day in the history of this universe when he frowns at any man. 
Oh, for God to smile upon me. It's His smile that I desire, not the smiles of men. And I hope that's the case with everyone here this morning. That's courage to keep the Word of God. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. That's near the end of your Bibles. For those of you who didn't know that. Revelation chapter 21. What's the first characteristic of those that will be thrown into the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death? What's the first characteristic of a wicked reprobate? Fearful. Isn't that amazing? Why didn't God put their idolatry or rebellion or hatred, haters of God? He put fearful. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable. Notice the other characteristics of those in this verse. But what I want you to see and hear and fear. Remember how Moses said over there in Exodus chapter 20, God has come to appear before you. Be not afraid. God has come to make you afraid. I want you to fear being fearful. Because being fearful is a sign of a reprobate. Because a man who is fearful has no faith. A man who has faith doesn't have fear. A man who loves God doesn't have fear. Perfect love casteth out fear. Faith and trust in God means I will not fear what man can do unto me. You can't have both. You say, but I thought you said God's saints will fear. Yes, in their flesh, fear will come. But are they able to overcome that by faith in God in their new man? They've been given the ability of it ability to do that, and they must do it. Look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. If you men were to take a Bible to work and have it laying on your desk, would you be afraid? Some of you work in situations where it wouldn't be frightening. Some of you, would you leave a Bible out on your desk? Would you bow your head and pray before a meal? If in a discussion an issue came up that they were debating and you had the answer from the Word of God, would you open your mouth and say, you're all wrong, God has already given His answer, and here it is, and it's found in the Bible? Or are you afraid of being a Bible-quoting fundamentalist? You're afraid of being a Bible-quoting religious fanatic? Or do you have courage to say something from the Word of God? If someone's in need of comfort, are you able to comfort them just naturally? Or are you able to comfort them scripturally, appealing to God in some way? Or are you afraid of being considered too religious? Why are we afraid of men? Now the Hebrews are being exhorted in Hebrews 13.6 because they were facing physical persecution. They could lose their lives. They could be thrown in prison. You don't face that. We don't face anything comparable to that, and yet we cave in all too easily. Look at Luke chapter 12. Jesus warned us about fear in verse 4 when He said to His disciples, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, 
and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. What is the worst that any man in this world can do to us is to kill the body. So what? Thanks be to God. You'll be singing on the way, brethren. But there is a being in this universe that you should fear. After he kills the body, he has the power to cast both body and soul into hell. And that isn't the devil. I can remember as a child thinking Luke 12, 4 and 5 were talking about the devil. There's no fear of the devil. The devil can't do anything but kill your body also. He can't touch your soul. If Jesus Christ has delivered it. This is speaking of Almighty God. If we fear God, we'll not fear men. If we have a fear of men, it's, it's evidence and proof that we don't fear God as we should. He goes on to say in verse 6, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. God doesn't forget one sparrow. Sparrows are the ugliest, the greatest nuisance of all birds. Maybe the blue jay, maybe crows, but they're all in a family together. Sparrows are a nuisance, and they're cheap because they're plentiful, too plentiful. I remember as a child, my father would always build wren houses, we wanted to keep wrens. Now, wrens are nice little birds. They have sweet music, and they're not a nuisance like sparrows. And you've got to make the hole for a wren house the size of a quarter, and no larger. If you make it any larger, guess who can get in and will eat the eggs of the poor little wren? Sparrows. I, from the earliest of ages, I hated sparrows. We'd build houses for wrens and shoot sparrows. I can remember my father in the parsonage right behind the church. We'd be eating lunch. He'd see a sparrow sitting on one of our wren houses. Out would come the gun. The window would go up. We'd shoot another sparrow. Trying to protect our pretty little wrens. They're a nuisance. But God doesn't forget one of them. God doesn't forget one sparrow. And he goes on to say, in verse 7, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Tie that in with Hebrews 13, 6. Not only has God said, I will never leave, fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. You worth two this morning? You worth three? How many sparrows are you worth this morning? All the sparrows in the universe can't compare to me. All the sparrows in the universe squared and cubed are not worth what I'm worth to Almighty God. He considers me His Son. And He's never thought of a sparrow in any light like that. Should we fear? God doesn't even forget a single sparrow. He'll be with us and deliver us. Look at Joshua chapter 14 this morning. Let's quickly review that great example of courage named Caleb. 
Remember, Moses sent 12 spies to spy out the land of Canaan. Ten of them came back and said, the sons of Anak live there. They're the Anakim. They're giants. They have cities walled up to heaven. And those cities are on mountains. Just think, we've got to go up the mountain, then we've got to scale the city walls, and then we're going to meet men that are the size of Wilt Chamberlain or larger. You know, Goliath did have two feet on Wilt the stilts. He was a, Goliath was a big man. And we were as grasshoppers in their sight. Why, we could just see them making fun of us. We're so puny. We're runs. They would have put us in a circus as midgets. And we were grasshoppers in our own sight. That's what the spies said. There were two spies that said we can go take the land easily and we ought to do it now. Joshua and Caleb. God made a promise to Caleb for his great courage that when he got into the land of Canaan, he could have the, he could have the land of his own choosing. And so he approaches Joshua here. In Joshua chapter 14, he tells Joshua in verse 10 that although I'm 85 years old, I'm still strong and I'm still able to go out for war. This is in verse 11. As yet I am as strong this day as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, even so is my strength now for war, both to go out and to come in. Not only can I go out to war, but I'll come home. And somebody else is not going to come home from the other side. I can go out and I can come in. And he says in verse 12, that great text of courage. Now, therefore, give me this mountain where the Anakims dwelled, whereof the Lord spake him that day. For thou heardest in that day how the Anakims were there and that the cities were great and fenced. If so be the Lord will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Now, was Caleb filled with self-confidence or was Caleb filled with confidence in God? <clears throat> you say, but he makes reference to his own strength in verse 11. Well, Joshua and him were buddies. I mean, they're both well up in years. He's convincing Joshua, I'm not an invalid yet. Don't retire me. Don't put my uniform up in the Hall of Fame yet. I still have some more to do. I'm able to fight. But his confidence, his hope for victory, was not in his own ability. He knew that a city on a mountain is rather impregnable without superior forces. He knew that if that city had great walls up to heaven, it makes it somewhat more impregnable. And he knew that if there were nine-foot basketball players inside, it made it even tougher. He wasn't having confidence in himself, but in the Lord. Because notice what it tells us about Caleb. The last clause of verse 8. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. And then the last clause of verse 14. Because that he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. What was the basis for Caleb's success? He wholly followed the Lord his God. He did what Moses told Joshua to do. Be strong, be courageous. Did he do that? Give me this mountain. Did he meditate in the word of God day and night and diligently observe all that was written there? He wholly followed the Lord his God and Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb. 
valiant men. Would you be, if you, if you were alive in the days of Solomon and David, how would they classify you? Would you have been listed in 2 Samuel 23 as one of David's mighty men? Or would you be an example of having the heart of a woman, as the Bible also describes? I want to read one little text from Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Song of Solomon, chapter 3, where a reference is made to Solomon's bedroom. I don't know how many secret service agents are around the president while he's sleeping. Does anyone here know? Maybe none. Maybe they're out in the hallway. Maybe they're checking the entrances and exits to the building he's in. But listen to this. Speaking of Solomon, verse 7, Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. I wonder if it was round. Three score valiant men are about it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. Isn't that great? Sixty of the very finest Israel had to offer. And did they have some fine to offer? They had some pretty fine men, as we studied in Second Samuel regarding the mighty men of David. But King Solomon had sixty. The only reason I raise this text is God uses it to use the word valiant. Would you qualify as being valiant? These are men that death was something to laugh at. There would have been no question if they faced danger to the life of their king, they would have mocked at death. We have secret service agents that will do the same, don't we? I've mentioned just a few weeks ago when the assassination attempt was made on President Reagan. Remember the agent that threw him into the car and that throw themselves in the path, in the, in the line of fire, in order to take the shots themselves. Those are valiant men. How courageous are you? Are you able to throw yourself in the path of righteousness, though someone might call you a name? It sounds rather pitiful, doesn't it? Some men are willing to give their lives for another man. And then some men, afraid even of the words of others. We read this morning in Psalm 56, flesh is nothing that we should fear because its breath is in it. God has no breath. Those beings that look at us and try to cause us to fear by their looks or intimidate us by their looks, those that say things to us, their breath is within them. Their breath can end in a moment and they're out of existence. What, why fear them? God is the object of true fear. Look at Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Most fear is unfounded. Most fear is unfounded. It's a creation of a weak imagination. Proverbs 22:13 The slothful man saith, 
There is a lion without. I shall be slain in the streets. This example is given not because the cities of Judea at this time were filled with lions. This example is given of a weak imagination able to come up with excuses for being slothful or lacking in courage. There's a lion out there. How many times have you faced an interview? How many times have you faced going to your brother and rebuking some sin in his life? How many times did you need to put your foot down at home and rule your little kingdom and you were afraid to do so because your imagination just fretted of all the things that might happen? There's a lion in the streets. What if they don't like me? What if my children complain about my new rules? Oh, God, you're kidding. You're kidding. You should, you should plug your ears when we read about valiant men around the bed of Solomon if you're afraid of children. I mean, if you're afraid of men, I'll give you a little bit of credit. But don't, aren't we afraid of our children at times? We do not want to displease our children. And so we read the Word of God. We hear preaching on child training. We know what we ought to do. And because we want the affection of our little kitties, we are afraid to put down our foot and rule in our homes. Men are supposed to rule their wives. Your wife does something in rebellion, a show of insubmission. She doesn't do what you tell her to and you're afraid to put your foot down and confront her over that situation, she might not be very exciting that evening. Horrors. Only be thou courageous and very strong to do all that God has commanded you. We're afraid. Most fear is the result of an imagination that is always making up uh, things that could go wrong. There are some temperaments that are fearless out of hastiness and a lack of thought. There are other temperaments that are fearful. Fearful means full of fear because all they see are the negatives and they're afraid to ever take a risk. Between those two extremes should be every child of God. Confident that God will deliver him when he does what is right, regardless of the risk. Are you an encouraging person? Do you provoke courage in the part of others? Like David and Jonathan had for each other? When Jonathan went into the wood and strengthened David's hand in God, there Jonathan was a source of encouragement to David. If you don't obey God's word, God will take away your courage. Look at Jeremiah chapter 46. When you disobey, God takes away courage. When you are strong and courageous, God will infuse you with greater courage. Remember those verses I've shown you before. Be of good courage, and the Lord will strengthen your heart. 
Notice who begins the process. You, be as courageous as you are able, and God will give you greater zeal in the doing. But if you are timid, God will not come to your rescue. If you are disobeying His word, He'll take away the courage you think you have. Jeremiah 46 and verse 15. This is the word of the Lord by Jeremiah to Egypt. Why are thy valiant men swept away? They stood not because the Lord did drive them. What happened to valiant men when they're driven away? God drove them. Look at the book of Amos. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Chapter 2 and verse 16. This is the day when God would bring judgment upon Israel. And he said of the nation in that day, Amos 2.16, And he that is courageous, now here's a man who had courage, he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord, because God will bring calamity and fear. Proverbs chapter 1, When your fear cometh, God will then laugh. Instead of strengthening you against calamity, He'll leave you subject to the great fear. Look at Job chapter 18 regarding the wicked and what God does to them. Job chapter 18, verse 11, this is speaking of a wicked man. Terrors shall make him afraid on every side, Job 18, 11, and shall drive him to his feet. His strength shall be hunger-bitten, and destruction shall be ready at his side. It shall devour the strength of his skin. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle, and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. God will root out your confidence so that you're a timid person and leave you shaking and bring you to meet the king of terrors. According to these verses here in Job 18, if you are not courageous and strong to do all that God has commanded. If you fudge or protect or compromise or modify the Word of God, He'll leave you. He'll leave you trembling, and He'll leave trouble in your life, and you'll be unable to bear up under it. We need to be courageous. Look at Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs 14, and, re and again, where does courage come from? It comes from the promise of God, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And then you add to that the Psalms that we've read every Sunday for years, and the words of the Savior when He said we're worth more than many sparrows. When God is with us, who can be against us? Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 16, here's what the Bible thinks of self-confidence. A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. You'll meet fools that are confident in their foolishness. Now that's self-confidence, but it's a fool's self-confidence. Because what's he confident in? His iniquity. He rages and he's confident. Nothing will happen to me. Look at chapter 25. The great men in the history of this world are not men who trusted their own ability. 
They are men who trusted the ability of God. Those are the great men. Because men have no ability. You want to trust your ability to get something done? Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, but he didn't give himself any credit for being able to accomplish those things when he said the things that I would, I do not. It's confidence in God that makes great men. This nation was formed by great men. And what was the source and basis for their confidence? But that the Almighty God had called them to this nation to serve Him and to worship Him here and to defend themselves against popery and popery's emissaries, which at that time was partly the King of England. They had confidence in God Remember what Caleb said? I wish I could turn back there. Joshua 14, where he said, God is able. If God will be with me, then I shall be able to drive them out and take this mountain. His ability, his confidence in his ability was based on God, not in self-confidence. The men in Scripture you'll find degrading themselves as worms, as fearful, begging God for mercy and help. They're not filled with self-confidence. They're filled with the fact that if God has called them to do something, they'll be courageous to do it, trusting Him to bless them. Proverbs 25:19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken foot and a foot out of joint. And brethren, we all are unfaithful. When it comes to true faithfulness, only God is truly faithful. To put confidence in yourself is like to have a broken foot and to go into battle. You're not very mobile. You're not very fit for battle. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken foot. You want to have confidence in the Almighty God in time of trouble. Chapter 29 and verse 25, The fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. My biggest fear in life, and I'll tell you mine. I don't know how many people you've told yours, but I'll tell you mine. My greatest fear is not having perfectly the mind of the Lord and holding and teaching some error. That's my greatest fear. Death. Oh, sometimes. Who wants to think about dying? But most times, it wouldn't be bad to get out of this world. Fear of one of my kids being killed in an automobile accident? So what? God gave them. God can take them away whenever He well chooses. And I'll be happy with both events. I do my best to keep them from such an event. But if God takes them, so be it. It's the will of God. I'm not going to curse Him. I'm going to bless Him. I'll thank Him for the years I had with them and for the other children I yet have. That's not my greatest fear. I hardly ever think of it. Intruders at night? No, I trust God for that. And Smith and Wesson and Ruger. That isn't my fear. My fear is not having the mind of the Lord. My fear is holding some error. And I don't like verses like Proverbs 29 and verse 25 in some ways. You know what they tell me? The fear of man bringeth a snare, 
If I fear men, I'll end up in error. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. If I end up with my family and I serving God at 8 Carolina Drive and the rest of you forming your own church, so be it. I am not going to be afraid of the looks nor the words of this congregation. God's called me to preach. God's given His Word. It's able to make me perfect, and you're not going to add one thing to it. That doesn't mean you might run across a verse sometime and ask a question that provokes me to some new revelation. Not some new revelation, but to some new understanding of God's revelation. That's my greatest fear. But my greatest fear is conquered simply by putting my trust in the Lord who's called me to be your pastor. And if the Bible teaches it and the Bible says it, guess what's going to happen? It's going to come out of this pulpit. And if I step on your toes, if I bludgeon your toes, if I do it week after week, but that's what the Bible teaches, then you're all going to be limping. Because I'm not going to hold back when I see your faces twinging with the pain. What's your greatest fear? I'll tell you, the fear of man brings a snare. Is your fear to confront church members when you see personal offenses, is that your greatest fear? Are you able to confront a brother or a sister when you see in their life something that has offended you or sin that offends God? but it's yet kept private. Are you frightened? Are you dismayed to go confront them? Or are you bold and courageous to go do what God has called you to do? Let's turn that around. Now that's Matthew 18. If your brother offend you, go and tell him your fault between thee and him alone. That's going that direction. Are you courageous to do that? I asked just a few weeks ago, did you do that at least once during 1988? Do you remember that question? If you didn't do that once during 1988, you're a chicken. And if you tell me that you didn't see any offense that you needed to go confront over, I'll call you a liar or blind. You're a chicken. You've got the heart of a woman, as the Bible would put it. The Bible doesn't say you've got the heart of a chicken. It says you've got the heart of a woman. Let's turn it around the other way. You've offended someone, or you've made some failures in your life. Are you bold and courageous enough to go confess your faults to another? That gets hard too, doesn't it? Because you're afraid of what that person might do with the information about your past. takes courage. God commands both sides of that equation. He says if you're coming to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, then you're to go resolve that matter. But you know we're afraid to go admit our faults to someone because that person just might take advantage of the opportunity and bludgeon us for our fault. So we're afraid, aren't we? We'll just let this one ride. Hopefully he's forgotten it. I'll try to forget it and we'll just go on. 
God said, if you're at the altar, go and do it before you bring your worship. That is a point when the Bible says, observe to do diligently all that's commanded in the Word of God and be courageous to do it. It takes courage, doesn't it? And that's just dealing brother to brother. Husbands and wives, are you courageous to confront your spouse and resolve a difference? Or do you pull into your shell and go through one day, then two days, then three days and more days of a difference existing because you're lacking in courage to sit down and have that confrontation. You might have a wife that has a sharper tongue and a faster working brain than yours, and you know when you sit down, you're going to have to endure 30 minutes of grief. Gagger, if you need to. But have the courage to do your job. Wives, your husband may have offended in some area in your marriage and you need to go confront him. And you need to be ready for 30 minutes of being told that you are to submit. And remember rule number one of living in this home. The boss is always right. And you may have to listen to that for 30 minutes before your husband finally says, you're right. And it's all over. Are you courageous enough to do it? You know what we do. Well, let's just let that slip. Let's just... Time will, he time will heal all wounds. Time will cure all, does it? No. We just wallow in our differences. Spouses, how courageous are you to go confess your faults to your partner? Are you courageous enough, wives, to go and tell your husband, I'm sorry for not submitting this afternoon when we had so-and-so over and I was rather forward in my speech and did not submit to you? I'm sorry for doing that and by the help of God, I'll never do it again. Are you afraid to do that because your husband's going to use that against you and remind you of it? Do you rebuke sin in each other's lives? Or wives, do you say, after all, he is the head of this home, I guess he has a right to sin? You wouldn't put it, maybe, in those words. But do you rebuke your husbands for their sin? You are... You want to see bitterness? You ain't nothing of a help, meat for Adam, if you don't help your husband when he has sin in his life. I don't care if you fix three fine meals, and I don't care if you're a good mother, and I don't care if you mend his clothing, and I don't care if you bake the bread he eats. You can hire women to do that for nothing. Do you help your husband when he has sin in his life? That's a help, meet for Adam. A wife that will check him in his ungodliness. Are you courageous enough to do it? It takes courage. That takes courage. To go call your husband down for his behavior in a respectful, submissive way. That's courage. Parents, you confront your children. It's so easy. You know your children have done something that violated a plain commandment in your household. The easiest, most desirable thing in the world for everyone, including me, 
is to let it slip. Because you don't want the hurt and the confrontation of having to discipline them and the strained relationship that it might create in your mind for a while. You create this big lion that's on a chain that if you discipline this kid, it's going to ruin your life for a week. Most times, if you discipline properly, I'd say all times, except most people don't know how to discipline properly, most times it will immediately restore the relationship to exactly the way it should be when a child has been put in its place. The sweetest times I ever had with my parents were those moments immediately upon standing up and pulling up my pants after having been whipped. We would embrace and have the sweetest fellowship for those few moments immediately after having been disciplined. And I got it with all sorts of instruments, brethren. Briars and thorns have been there. And I didn't get to rely on Le Mr. Levi to protect me. I've had 220 wire. Have I ever told you about having a 220 wire? Piece about that long? When my dad got done, it was shaped like this. <laughs> but I got the message. I got the message. That would resolve the difference. I know I, I know I had sinned as a child. He knew I had sinned as my father. He's disturbed about it. I'm disturbed about it. I'm sick. I've done it. What's going to happen to me? All that dilemma is there when if the disciplining could be over, it's all resolved. He's holding, hugging me again, and we're back to good terms. But do we have the courage to do that? Do we have the courage to rule in our homes? Do you have the courage to train your children scripturally? Do you sit them down and train them from the Word of God? Or are you thinking inside they're going to laugh at me? The Bible's boring. I'm going to give boring devotions. They're going to be bored to tears. And you don't have the courage to do it anyway because you're afraid they might think you're boring. Are you afraid to put down rules on your older children? As my children become older, I know they're going to be fighting harder against restrictions I'm going to be putting on them. Am I going to cave in or am I going to rule them? What are you going to do? It takes courage. Lots of it. David didn't have it, did he? David didn't have it. Will you have it? How many of you children, and we're all children, that's what I mean, how many of you children have gone to your parents and confessed your faults? I mean as adults. How many times have you confessed your faults to your parents and apologized for the way you treated your parents? Have you done that? Why aren't you courageous enough to do that? Might your pride be hurt to do that? Where's your zeal and boldness to do that? Are you able to sit your parents down and correct them when they have an error? We have children that go to school. Are you able to stand against the crowd or are you afraid of what other people call you and what other people say about you? Or are you courageous to stand alone knowing that God is on your side? Professionally, how courageous are you? Do you grab every opportunity that God has given you? I see courage in two realms. One 
It is to stand against men. That is peer pressure. Caleb did that when he and Joshua stood against the entire nation. That's standing against men. Exodus 23 and verse 2 tells us not to follow a multitude to do evil. The other aspect of courage is to attempt great things. And I've preached this before. To attempt great things for God. See, Caleb not only stood against the crowd, but 45 years later, he said, give me this mountain. Now that's attempting great things for God. That's courage in a different aspect. There was a man once given one talent. He went and hid his one talent in the earth. Do you know why he went and hid his one talent in the earth? He was afraid. He was afraid. There's a line in the streets. And he knew that his master was a hard man who required earnings on capital. He was afraid, so he went and buried it. Are all of you men amounting to all that you should be in your lives? Or because of fear, have you buried talents in the earth? Or if God has given you five, have you exploited them to have five more? I wish all the social economists in the world could hear this statement. God's Word teaches the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Because what did God do to the wimp who buried his talent in the earth? He took the talent away from that man and gave it to the man that had ten. There is no mercy for fear like that. Attempt great things. Some of you talk to me when you're going to interview for a job, and I encourage you to be bold in your follow-up, bold in your interview. Boldness is lacking today. To see some confident people, men will hire you. I hope professionally you're as courageous as you should be in utilizing the opportunities God brings your way. Are you able to confront your master in a respectful, kind way? Or are you in subjection with amazement? As 1 Peter 3, 6 describes. Unable to think for yourself. What about physically? How courageous are you physically? Some of you have health problems. Some of you will have health problems before Jesus Christ returns. How courageous will we be when the doctor says you have three months to live? Are we going to be courageous? Are we going to remember that though we might pass through the curtain of death, God has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The difference between life, physical life and death to him is irrelevant. The soul and spirit are still in the presence of God is still with them. Will we be courageous? Will we be bold? in the face of death. Are you afraid of accidents? Are you afraid to drive your car? Afraid to take an airplane flight? God should be your confidence in such matters. And with all the rumors today, this causes cancer, that causes cancer, everything causes cancer, brethren. Don't go outside, the sun will cause cancer. Don't stay inside, these lights will cause cancer. Don't walk on this floor, the fibers may cause cancer. Everything causes cancer. Are you afraid? I hope not. God is our trust. We live in a time when there's more rumors. Do you know why? Because men are afraid. Men are afraid. 
The scripture uses the expression, men's hearts will fail them for fear. Very interesting statement. I want to explore it further when I preach on the Bible and physical health. Why the great onset of heart disease in the 20th century? Men's hearts failing them for fear. Courage is something we need to increase. It's all based on your knowledge of God. Look at Isaiah 26. Isaiah chapter 26. You will face this week occasion to be afraid of something, probably some man or group of men. Will you be courageous? Will you be bold? Will you be like Caleb, like Joshua? Will you find success and prosperity for your lives? Isaiah 26 and verse 3 tells us, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. You put your trust in God, you keep your mind stayed on Him, and He'll give you perfect peace. AIDS, perfect peace. Auto accidents, perfect peace. Cancer history in your family, perfect peace. Men losing their jobs around you at work, perfect peace. Kids rebelling against you, perfect peace. As long as you keep your mind stayed on Him and His Word. If you observe to do diligently all that is written in the Scriptures. The last reference is in Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 regarding the Word of God. God is able and God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on Him. If He is the source of your trust. But then God's Word is to be utilized also to increase your faith. The Bible tells us faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In Proverbs chapter 3, at verse 21, we read, My son, here's fatherly advice that does us all good. Let not them, that is the words of wisdom and the words of knowledge, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked, when it cometh. For the Lord shall be thy confidence, and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Keeping your mind on Him is the source of confidence and courage in this world and keeping your mind in the Word of God and all of its promises and observing to do diligently all that it has commanded will cause you to be able to lie down and not be afraid. Verse 24, there is no fear to a man who's put his trust in the Lord. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I pray to God that all of us will be as courageous and as brave as we should be given His promise to always be with us. I guarantee you this week something will arise somewhere, sometime, where you will be tested as to your courage before men. 
I hope you'll remember some of the verses we've looked at this morning and be a valiant man that would have been fit for Solomon's bedroom, fit for the throne of David, fit to be one of his mighty men, fit to have that commendation of being one that put his trust in the Lord and did valiantly. The righteous are bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no man pursueth. May God make that difference real in your life.